Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. O&P? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. When we left the Gemini program, uh, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman had just launched aboard their Gemini 7 capsule and were preparing to spend a week on orbit waiting to be joined by Wally Shira and Tom Stafford in the very first on-orbit rendezvous of two spacecraft. And we are going to get Wally and Tom to the pad and into orbit, I promise. But first, I want to pause for a minute and reflect a bit more on the last episode. Uh, in that episode, Chris Hadfield, Tim Braithwaite, and I talked about NASA's Day of Remembrance. And we talked about what it takes to move forward after a tragedy. We talked about the dual need to honor those astronauts that died by moving forward, but also to ensure that their sacrifice was not in vain by learning from the mistakes that killed them so that we can do the job better. And we talked about how those values really are ingrained in the NASA culture as we have all experienced it. Now, I bring it up today because I want to reflect back on how those values, I think, are also evident in what was happening in the fall of 1965. In fact, maybe it's fair to say that the events surrounding Gemini 76 um, were one of the early formative examples of those values. Now, before I'm going on, I'd do want to take a minute to say that this is not some kind of uh, hey geography of NASA as an organization. Heaven knows that NASA is not now, nor has it ever been some kind of paragon of programmatic virtue. But it is an organization that has been doing high value, high performance, high risk work for 60 years. And I think it's also fair to say that it has a history really of a preponderance of success in those things that it has attempted to do many of which have been at the outer edge of human experience and expertise. So there is something in the bones and sinews of NASA that is good at that job. And the more I learn about the Gemini program, the more I see the growth and maturity of a lot of that organizational physiology. I think that it's sometimes overlooked because there's a bit of a myth about Gemini. Um, there's a myth that it somehow existed in some kind of golden age. Yeah, sure, the work was challenging, the goals were big and hairy, but not as big as the ones that were to come. But the money flowed like water, and inside the NASA team was unified of purpose and focused on a single vision. And outside the agency, the public was supportive. The federal government, bureaucracy, and politicians trusted the smart NASA engineers and scientists get on with their jobs, checking in only occasionally to see if there was anything else they needed while they pursued John F. Kennedy's vision of getting to the moon and back by decade's end. Yeah, right. And if you believe that, I think I might have some swampland in Florida you'd be interested in. The truth is that those impressions are, of course, largely the invention of 50 years of distance and a lot of wishful thinking. Essentially, the reasoning goes that because NASA ultimately got to the moon and back, they must have done everything right and enjoyed every advantage on the way there. And there's a Latin expression that sums up this line of reason. reasoning. It's known as post hoc ergo propter hoc, which basically means after this, so because of this. 
And it's actually not just a Latin expression. It's actually a description of a common logical fallacy that because one thing happens after another, it's causally related to it. Uh, you, whenever you hear somebody saying, in retrospect, we can see that something was fated to happen, um, you're probably hearing post hoc ergo propter hoc reasoning at work. Uh, we, I mean, we do this naturally. When things fail, we like to believe that there was no way out, that there was nothing that have, could have prevented the disaster. And conversely, when things have worked out for people in the past, uh, particularly people who were doing a job similar to the one we do, we tend to minimize their challenges, to say, well, it worked then, but it couldn't work now. Those guys couldn't have gotten away with that today. And most of the time, frankly, that's nonsense. When mistakes happen, somebody probably screwed up. There was almost certainly a point in time when they should have known and done something different that would have prevented the catastrophe. Similarly, when people and organizations succeed massively, they probably did so in the face of immense challenges, and they probably displayed some uncommon, maybe even rare, qualities that most people and organizations simply lack most of the time. If that were not true, uh, those successes wouldn't stand out. And so it is with NASA and the Gemini program, I think. It's an absolute myth to believe that the Gemini program was a cakewalk, that it somehow existed in a simpler time when its goals were clear, its resources were ample, and everyone inside the program and out just got along. I mean, ignore for a minute how things tur turned out, right? That Gemini was ultimately part of what is one of humankind's really um, signature success stories. And let's actually look at what it felt like to be part of the Gemini program at the time. It was conceived as an extension to an existing project and then grown into a standalone program. Uh, other than build a better spacecraft, it really had no firm requirements when it was conceived. And the requirements that it did have were more or less invented to justify creating the program in the first place. I'm pretty sure that if I described a new program that way, no one out there would think that those were major harbingers of ultimately, ultimate success. It should also be noted that when Gemini was stood up, it was just as its parent organization was undergoing a massive physical and cultural transformation as it went from being a single project group that lived in somebody else's facility to being an independent agency running multiple programs while building its own new facilities. I mean, in point of fact, because of this, the Gemini project team would actually not all occupy the same office space for almost the entirety of the program. The program involved uh, three separate prime contractors working for three different sections of two different government departments, each of which brought their own senior managers and management culture to the party. Also, in the matter of oversight and governance, remember that halfway through the program, it was in so much trouble that the program manager was fired and the management structure was almost entirely redesigned to include a lot more visibility from agency senior management. Once again, if I described a program that was running in those terms, you wouldn't think it was on a pathway to success. And the reason that this was done was at least partly because the senior management was under almost constant pressure from above, from Congress and the U.S. administration, to justify not only the progress of the program, but periodically to justify its existence as well. If you doubt that, consider this fact. After the Gemini 6 launch failed, NASA's response to the event was of sufficient interest to the U.S. administration and the nation that they scheduled a presidential press conference 72 hours after the event while the president was on vacation. 
I think that should put paid to any thoughts that Gemini enjoyed a light oversight and necessarily a supportive political environment. And let's also remember that the program exceeded its original budget by a factor of five, and it exceeded its original schedule by maybe a factor of three. But in spite of all of that, it is now seen as a shining success story in NASA's history. But that's not because it existed in some kind of golden age when somehow we didn't let bureaucracy and infighting and competing internal agendas and shifting requirements and budgets get in the way of achieving great things. All of those things were as true for Gemini as they are for any large, complex government procurement program there has ever been. It did not succeed because those factors were absent. It succeeded in the face of those challenges. And instead of writing Gemini's achievement off as having been accomplished in an easier time, we should instead ask ourselves how it was that Gemini managed to overcome all of those challenges. Why did Gemini, and ultimately Apollo, succeed when so many large ambitious projects that start out with high hopes, ambitious visions, and talented people don't? It's actually a fascinating question, and let's face it, it's not an easy one to answer, and certainly not one that I'm going to really try to come to grips with here. But I do think that this moment in time in the podcast timeline holds some hints of the answer. As we have seen, the fall of 1965 for Gemini was actually a time of significant testing. And spoiler alert, it's not over yet. But Gemini and NASA not only got through that time of testing, they used the experience to accelerate both the program and the agency onward, upward, and outward in ways that might not even have been obvious at the time, but I think are clear in retrospect. It was, I think, an embodiment of the attitude that Chris and Tim and I talked about in the last episode. It was an example of a culture that was prepared to confront its mistakes, but to turn that confrontation into a means of finding better ways forward. It was an example of a culture that used setbacks not as an excuse to turn inward and backward, but that used setbacks as motivation. NASA, in effect, said, yes, this thing we are doing is hard. The fact that we just messed up is actually proof positive of that. If this was easy, you know, they'd have given the job to somebody else. So I guess we're going to have to try harder and be smarter if we actually want to get it done. That, I think, was Gemini in the fall of 1965. I really do think that the way that the program dealt with those lesser known or at least less well-remembered crises and its ultimate success in dealing with them shaped wider NASA culture in some pretty fundamental ways, ways that in turn were fundamental to success in confronting much more high-profile crises in the future. Well, okay, I've spent enough time rambling on about why it's important. Uh, let's get on with the story already. Uh, we already talked a little bit about the realities that uh, Jim Lovell and Frank Borman faced, effectively living in the front seat of a compact car for two weeks, but we didn't actually talk very much about the level of planning that went into making the mission possible. I mean, the difference between a two-week spaceflight and a two-week camping trip is that, unlike a car, you really can't get out and stretch your legs in space. Worse than that, you actually can't get rid of anything in the car. You really do have to come home with everything you left with. And the second law of thermodynamics, being what it is, um, that things tend to become more disordered over time, that meant that it was actually going to require a significant amount of planning just to make sure that at the end of the mission there was still a, still a place to stow everything that had been carefully stowed at launch. 
Of course, this being NASA, none of that was left to chance. It was actually an engineering exercise. Uh, for instance, the flight control team actually calculated the volume of space that was going to be needed to stow 14 days' worth of garbage from the crew's meals. They actually went hunting for that volume of empty space inside the capsule. And it turned out that that volume required fairly neatly matched the space behind the crew's seats. So a plan was made to store the garbage from uh, behind Borman's seat for the first week and behind Lovell's for the second. In fact, concerns about stowage were significant enough that the process of stowage was actually included in all the simulations of the phases of flight that would require a clean cockpit, including prep for rendezvous and preparation for reentry. In terms of the work that Lovell and Borman would be doing, a number of the experiments that they would be doing highlight um, uh, the less glamorous aspects of being an astronaut. I mean, aspects that don't actually get talked about all that much, but which definitely represent a significant contribution made by crews over the years. These are those experiments which, um, in which the crew effectively agree to make themselves into human guinea pigs. On Gemini 7, one of those was the Calcium Balance Study. As described in On the Shoulders of Titans, quote, it was a nuisance because they had to keep a complete record of body intake and wastes for nine days before the flight, 14 days during it, and four days afterwards. Before and after the mission, a nutritionist from the National Institutes of Health limited the items they could eat and drink and weighed out their meals in grams. Almost a month of this regimen did not appeal to the crew. Unquote. No kidding. And, in fact, for Lovell and Borman and the Gemini 7 mission planners, combining Gemini 7 with Gemini 6 actually made things even more constrained. Because the added weight in the form of external lights, a radar transponder and antenna and voltage booster to power it, as well as increased fuel margins for the rendezvous phase, actually reduced Lovell and Borman's capacity to do very much maneuvering at all on orbit, including their own station-keeping tests with their booster. In some ways, the highlight of the first half of Gemini 7 was the time spent keeping station on the booster immediately after separation. Unfortunately, it occupied a small portion of the first orbit, and after that, it was time to settle in for the duration. On the plus side, though, in contrast to the earlier attempts at flying formation with the booster, Lovell actually found that he was quite successful at closing with and staying in formation with the second stage of the Titan booster, which in itself was a very good sign, because it showed that many of the lessons that Buzz Aldrin and the rendezvous experts had been learning and teaching were starting to pay off. It boded well for the real centerpiece of the mission, which was, of course, the rendezvous with the Gemini 6A capsule. So, meanwhile, back at the Cape, while Lovell and Borman uh, might have been having a fairly slow first week on orbit, uh, the pad crew, specifically the pad 19 crew, which was the Gemini launch pad, uh, for them things were anything but slow. Gemini 7 was barely on orbit before the crews were already hard at work checking the pad for damage and replacing anything critical that might even appear to have been damaged. In less than a day, the launch team had the booster erected and the spacecraft mated to it, complete with all the standard tests and reviews. The team even took time out to use the Gemini 6 radar from the pad to interrogate the new Gemini 7 radar transponder on orbit as it passed overhead, and it worked fine. In the mission control center for the team supporting the Gemini 7 mission, the main issue at the time 
seems to have been crew comfort. Uh, as the MCC team worked with the crew and argued with NASA management about getting both crew members out of their spacesuits and into their shirt sleeves. But in the background, the MCC team continued to prepare for the big event of having to control two spacecraft at the same time. Uh, the remote sites, especially those in the Pacific who would be on the front line for the final approach to rendezvous, continued to practice their reboot sequences to ensure that they were able to switch between spacecraft in the limited comms window they would have. In the Mission Control Center in Houston itself, the flight control team continued to fill their time with discussions of hypothetical situations that might occur during the rendezvous portions of flight and how they would respond. In the end, however, it was not the new tasks that would cause the most excitement and the greatest challenge to the flight controllers and the crew of Gemini 6A. Instead, it was actually an event for which they trained eh, probably more than any other. And that was a launch abort. A launch abort was probably the single biggest preoccupation of both the crew and the flight control team. It was, truly, um, the point of maximum danger in the whole flight, really being only closely rivaled by re-entry. The difference was that a launch abort vent would give the whole team, including the crew, only a bare few seconds to react. Because effectively the situation is this. The crew is sitting on the launch pad in what is really a pretty flimsy cup of sheet metal. The cup is pretty well stuffed with a sizable quantity of explosives and toxic materials, which of course is bad enough. But also, of course, the whole thing is sitting on top of what is, as we have noted before on this show, uh, a pretty large bomb with a couple of holes in one end. It basically consisted of two very large tanks of very nasty substances that, when mixed, would immediately react violently and extremely um, uh, exothermically. And of course, if no escape had been provided for the resulting reaction products, the result would be basically an explosion. A bomb. A very large bomb. When everything worked properly, and let's face it, the vast majority of the time it did, those reaction products would be channeled out the nozzles of the rocket engines, and instead of a rapid, uncontrolled disassociation of several tons of spacecraft, instead, massive controlled thrust was generated that lifted those several tons into orbit. Given what was at stake, and given how quickly things could go horribly wrong in this process, it was no surprise that a major preoccupation of the Gemini designers, mission planners, flight controllers, not to mention the crew, was A, what to do if something went horribly wrong, and also B, how to tell if it had. As Gene Cran says, quote, their decision time was two to four seconds. Boosters two main nightmares were calling for an abort when it wasn't really necessary or ejecting the crew too late. The parachutes wouldn't inflate or the crew would be swallowed in the boiling explosive toxic propellants that we called the BFRC, unquote. And since this is a family podcast, I will not explain that acronym completely except to say that B stands for big, RC stands for red cloud. You can figure out what the F is for. In fact, the decision margins were so fine that there was literally a big red button on the booster console, which the booster controller could use to call an abort. He was the only person, other than the flight director, who had the authority to do that. In any other situation, the flight director would make the call to abort. But at the moment of launch, there just wasn't time. So Booster sat there with his big red button literally under his fingers for those crucial seconds. The nightmare scenario for all involved what was known as a launch fallback. 
This was the condition where the booster generated enough thrust to lift itself out of the protective cradle that it sat in while waiting to launch, but for whatever reason it didn't generate enough power to continue in flight and so fell back to the pad and basically started to collapse in a great heap, which would rapidly become the aforementioned BFRC when the reactants started, well, reacting in an uncontrolled way. Thus, the few seconds between the start of the engines and the clear indication that the rocket was actually going to leave the launch pad successfully were extremely critical. In order to protect that outcome as carefully as possible, a number of things were done. Uh, first of all, the rocket was actually held to the pad by special bolts that would only release once the booster had developed enough thrust. In the Titan's case, that was 77% of rated thrust, and that it was clear that it would leave the launch pad. Once those bolts released, the booster still had to travel upwards about three centimeters before that it was in, there was an indication that it was moving, and this indication was provided by the connectors on the detachable electrical umbilicals pulling free from their sockets. When the launch controller computer saw that disconnection, it would indicate that liftoff had occurred, and it would start the mission clocks running. So, if the clocks start running but the booster didn't leave the pad, that meant, or was supposed to mean, that the booster had disconnected from its support structure but failed to launch, which meant it was a fallback, which meant that boosters should hit the abort button, declare abort, 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 and the crew should reach for their ejection seat handles and eject from the spacecraft, ahead of the anticipated BFRC. On the 9th of December, after a pretty much nominal countdown, with Wally Shira and Tom Stafford aboard and Charlie Harlan acting as booster in mission control, Gemini 6A reached that critical stage in the countdown, and I'll let Gene Kranz pick up the story. Quote, At 8.54 a.m. Central Standard Time, the engines roared to life as the steam billowed from the flame bucket. Harlan saw a blip indicating thrust buildup, and the first motion command triggered the clocks in the MCC to start counting up. Shira and Stafford in the spacecraft felt the initial rumble of the engine ignition, the thrust lights blinked, and the Gemini clock started. But then it was strangely quiet. Like a lightning bolt, the same thought had to have flickered through the minds of the crew, Harlan, and the launch test conductor. Had a liftoff occurred? Were we in pad fallback? Was 300,000 pounds of rocket spacecraft and crew crumpling back to Earth? Within the seconds allowed for this case, three separate minds came to the single correct conclusion. Harlan called over the voice loop to Kraft, no liftoff, no liftoff. In the spacecraft, Shira and Stafford were icemen. They held fire, calmly reporting the cockpit indication as the Martin test conductor initiated the kill recovery procedures. Unquote. In fact, despite the clocks counting, Gemini 6A had not lifted off the pad. The bolts holding it to the bad had not been released because the engines had started shutting down before they generated enough thrust to actually get off the pad. The booster had experienced two independent failures almost simultaneously. First of all, a stray dust cover that should have been removed months before during processing had been left in place, and it prevented the engines from running up to full power. So the booster had not actually broken the bolts and been released from the pad. The second failure, which probably would have gone unnoticed but for the first, was that the umbilical disconnected prematurely and started the clocks running before the booster actually lifted off, because it wasn't held in tightly enough and it was dislodged by the initial vibration. Thankfully, the crew and the flight controllers 
Through countless simulations and tests, we're trained to look for an independent confirmation of launch through a variety of other factors, none of which any of them saw. And so they all concluded, correctly, that it was the clock that was wrong, even though they might not even have been able to say exactly why they knew that. Despite that, as the saying goes, um, great victories are not won merely by avoiding defeat, and NASA did have the problem that Wally Shara and Tom Stafford were um, still on the ground, again. Although this time, at least their target was still in orbit. But it would not be there forever. Uh, the clock was very much ticking, as Lovell and Borman really, really did have to come home in a bit over six days from that moment. Now, normally recycling an aborted launch takes about four days. Um, that was cutting things pretty fine to allow for a full rendezvous timeline and the time to bring uh, two separate spacecraft home safely. Because remember, of course, that the mission control was set up to support Gemini 6 and Gemini 7 simultaneously, so long as Gemini 7 was basically acting as a passive target. A mission control was in no way configured to manage the re-entry operations for two spacecraft at the same time or even in close proximity. So, re in reality, it would be a lot better if Gemini 6 could be launched just a bit earlier to give everybody a bit more breathing room that they could get up and down in time for NASA to get ready to bring Gemini 7 down safely. So, the KSC pad crew went out and did the four-day recycle in three days. Now, while this little accomplishment is glossed over in most accounts of the Gemini 76 mission, I suspect that, that there were many unsung heroes in those 72 hours that it took to get the Gemini 6 back on the pad, and Shira and Stafford back in their seats for hopefully their third-time lucky launch into the history books. And, and so, of course, it turned out to be. On December 15th at 8.37 a.m., Gemini 6A finally cleared the launch pad on the way to its rendezvous with Gemini 7. And that's actually where we're going to leave it today, because there's a lot to talk about in that rendezvous, and we've been waiting for it for a long time. We'll just have to wait for one more episode. And next time, so next time, we'll take a look at that moment, which is a moment when NASA truly did surpass anything that had gone before, and from which it continued to accelerate on its way to the moon. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.